The key thing there, and I think this is why one reason we're so interested in subtraction and making things mindless and getting rid of friction, it's to clear the way for the things in life that are hard and should be hard. So that's kind of our philosophy. Welcome to Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the podcast where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty and global experts on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. Have you ever applied for a passport? It can be a nightmare. You have to find the right form on a government website. You have to fill it in, come up with all kinds of obscure data that you don't have readily at hand. You have to print it out because, of course, you're going to present this form in person. And then, of course, you need a passport photo. And then you got to find your birth certificate and photocopy it and attach both versions to the form. You put all this together, you submit it, and you don't know if they're going to accept it or not because they might just come back to you and say, oh, you're missing form 6782B sub 2. Now, of course, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm willing to bet anyone who's ever ordered a passport has experienced something like this. Well, this is a classic example of friction, and it's not just a problem for passports. So what is friction in the workplace? Well, to me, friction is simply uh, putting obstacles in front of people that slow them down, that make their jobs hard to do, more difficult, and uh, maybe a little bit more frustrating like yours. That is the voice of acclaimed author and Stanford professor Bob Sutton. Bob has written multiple New York Times bestsellers, including Scaling Up Excellence and The No Asshole Rule. His upcoming book, co-authored with Stanford professor Huggy Rao, is all about workplace friction. It's called The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. It's coming out when? January, but you can order it now. You can order it now. (laughs) What is the genesis of The Friction Project? To me, there's two main genesis. One is rational, the other one's personal. So the rational one was, okay, Huggy and I write this book on scaling. And there's all these companies that Silicon Valley, you know, I'm in the engineering school, he's in the business school. They start out as little companies and they get huge. I, it wasn't that long ago in my mind's eye that I was sitting in one room in a hotel about a mile from here with the entire Facebook company in one room, 400 Amazing. people in one room, um, Google, Salesforce, all these companies we've seen scale is they got larger and more complex. Things got harder and harder to do. Our 2014 book was on scaling. Our 2024 book is on friction. It's not a complete accident. Right. As systems get larger, older, more complex, things get harder and harder to do. So that's the rational cause. The less rational cause was, well, Our dear employer, Stanford University, in the years I've been here, I've been here 40 years, has made things harder and harder and harder to do. Bad friction can grind an organization to a halt. But that doesn't tell the whole story, because friction can be good, too. Sometimes you need to slow down to avoid accidents, including corporate train wrecks. So I want to do, we have a little game we play on the podcast called Lightning Round, True or False. And (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So... (laughs) These are meant to piss you off. So I just had a test, so let's see. <laughs> okay. A zero friction workplace is the ultimate goal for maximum productivity. False. Oh, why? Well, because some things should be hard. It should be hard to cheat. It should be hard to steal. It should be hard to make uh, stupid decisions fast. And then, as every fraternity, sorority, and military knows, and IKEA, suffering creates its own sort of commitment to the product or 
the service or the cause or whatever. So, so suffering isn't all bad because this, the labor needs to love effect. The labor leads to love. Google provides an example of what happens when you have too little good friction. So you have an example of good workplace friction or what should, where sometimes you need friction. Uh -huh. And so, and that gets to the tagline of your book, which is how smart leaders make the right things easier right. and the wrong things harder. And the example you gave is Google Glass. Right, right. Sergey Brin was so excited to push to market. It was a half-assed product. It bombed. God knows what it cost, but there were people on the team, presumably, who thought that was a bad idea. Oh, yeah, and, and as I understand, I've talked to, eventually, people on the team, and people on the team told him it was too early, and he said no, and, and uh, my co-conspirator, Huggy Rao, and I also use that as an example, and I'm going to sort of swear of a management clusterfuck. <laughs> and, uh, but these are situations where leaders get so excited about something, they have the illusion that it's going to be great. Their impatience and their incompetence turns other people incompetent. And I think it's a pretty good example of that because when you put people in a position where it's impossible to do the work, but you push them to do it, well, that's a friction problem, but it's also a frustration problem because many of us have been on the path to failure and know it and can't stop our boss from pushing us there. So it's, it's a challenge. Okay, next lightning round, true or false. Protocols and routines stifle creativity and adaptability. Ooh, sometimes. So, so, well, let's say false because it's more fun to say false because one of the things that they do, and this is every cognitive psychologist can tell you this, that to do the hard things in life, we've talked about some of these creativity, true love rather than sort of surface commitment. We even talked about the power of emotional bonding. What you've got to do is you've got to kind of clear the way and having mindless processes that work one of the most uh, wonderful designers I ever met. This guy's name is Bill Mogrich. He actually, he passed away, but he had the patent on the first laptop computer and got royalties for like the clamshade. That was like his uh, design. He had this wonderful expression that the best designs are ones that you notice that you don't notice. It's like the difference between, for air, those of us in airports, going to the Singapore airport and the Heathrow airport. Oh my God. Because Singapore, I, I just, I've been there about 10 times. I can't, I just walk through and I'm, Somehow you get where you need to be. Yeah, and, and then Heathrow, you wait in line for an hour and a half, and then you wait in line well, for an hour and a half. Well, then you ride a bus like 20 kilometers in circles <laughs> underground. I'm like, where are we going? How is this How is this Terminal 5? This must be Terminal 55, you know? But, the, worst. but the, the key thing there, and I think this is why one reason we're so interested in subtraction and making things mindless and getting rid of friction, it's to clear the way for the things in life that are hard and should be hard. So that's kind of our philosophy. Such as... Creative process. Cre cre well, creative process. I mean, uh, Teresa Mobile, who spent 50 years studying creativity, she will show you that uh, when people rush, they may feel more creative, but usually they do worse, even when they, they feel more creative. And I think that creativity is hard. And, and, and all the evidence is you fail more when you do creative work. You, you have, you have yeah. maybe a little bit of unpleasant conflict. You have to try six bad ideas to find a one that's truly new or interesting or different or good. Good friction gives you time to get things right and see where others made mistakes. So slowing down to win. You bring the example in the book that sometimes first mover advantage is a trap. Yep. And the way we put it is uh, the second or third or fourth mouse gets the cheese, not the first mouse gets the cheese. So you watch your competitor. Because the first three are dead. Yeah, the first three are dead. <laughs> main. It's exactly right. You watch your competitor 
and you learn from it. And, you know, some of the myth- methodologies is that Airbnb is was not the first couch surfing. Yep, yep. And some people may remember MySpace before um, Facebook. Nobody ever talks about the Netscape browser anymore, from what I can tell. Right. So this idea that sometimes uh, being fast, all that does is uh, is get you killed off more quickly. So in the case of AI in its early days, and this is a positive friction story. So right now we're in a situation where everybody is just rushing ahead really fast. AI's got to be fast, got to be fast mover, first mover advantage, or we're dead and all that. And the evidence that they're seeing is, is that the people who win in other forms of AI, well, they go slow enough to work with the content experts so that they get the right content. Because if you don't work with the content experts, it can't just scrape the web and find it. So it, it turns out that slowing down to win, is this is a case where it might be worthwhile. So how do you introduce good friction while eliminating bad? Or as Bob puts it, how do you make the right things easier and the wrong things harder? Well, it starts with identifying the causes of friction. And through his research, Bob has identified a handful of friction traps, common situations that create unwanted workplace resistance. Uh, Okay, the last true and false. Most workplace friction comes from out-of-touch executives. Oh, I'll give them 25% of So I'll say false, but with a footnote, which is that uh, we all deserve some blame for it. And sometimes it's external forces we have no control over. Right, right. Uh, It could be rules. It could be regulations. It could be really you do need 15 accountants to satisfy the terms of the grant because it and three lawyers. Especially if it's the European Union. So uh, I would like to blame executives for everything. And, And we have a whole chapter about how oblivious leaders can cause problems. But uh, I don't want to give them all the blame or all the credit for fixing it. Even if friction doesn't always come from the top, it can be a good exercise for leaders to look inwards. So I've been at the Graduate School of Business now for six years. And I don't know why, but every five years the school has to be reaccredited. And so some committee of people from other business schools come here and say, you guys are doing okay. Well, I got an email from somebody in the front office, the dean's office, that said, we need you to contribute to our accreditation memo. And here's the topics we need you to cover. And it was a big list of topics, right? (laughs) And so I was like, oh, my God, this is really important. It's my chance to talk about what C does at the business school. So Uh I, you know, I assigned it to, you know, I was bad. I immediately assigned four people to work on this. And we created this amazing memo with graphs and charts and annexes. I think the whole thing was 12 pages long. The final memo that went to the accreditation team, Uh there was one sentence (laughs) from my 12-page, one-month stupid project. <laughs> and I was just, you know, and so when I was reading your book, I was like, God, that is friction. That is what happens when people who are in positions of power are unwittingly unaware of their cone of friction. I suspect nobody intended you to spend a month working on that. They just, you just mis- misunderstood it. I mean, I'm sure I misunderstood it. I probably should have done some inquiry. And also, what is this cone that you're describing? It's, I think it's the the number of peasants at the bottom of the village that yeah, are get yeah. punished by the prince's policies well, is uncountable. I also <laughs> love that example because um, probably the most prestigious organizational theorist who's ever been at Stanford is uh, the late James March. Uh, he was remarkable. And he used to talk about this thing that I, that I would call executive magnification, that when people are in power, 
sometimes what happens is uh, people beneath them to please them or to when they don't understand an assignment, they take it further than it was, was in, ever intended. intended. And it's actually a really great thing that leaders need to do is they need to be aware of the power and influence they have and to say things to you like, well, no more than a few sentences will do, right? To me, that's a perfect example. And I've been victim of that many times and I've done it to other people as well. Let's face it, some leaders are oblivious by nature, but many more become out of touch as they climb the corporate ladder. We talked briefly about oblivious leaders, and you use the phrase power poisoning. What is that? So power poisoning is that in general, when people feel powerful or more powerful, they tend to focus on their own needs. They tend to focus less on the needs of others, and then they tend to act like the rules don't apply to them. Or is it that they think that their needs must reflect everyone else's needs because they're so successful, so they must have been making good calls all along? Well, that's yes and. That's the, we call that the, the sort of centrality problem, which is oh, the right. leaders will tend to believe that they know what's going on in their organization. It's my company. I'm CEO, even though everybody's afraid to tell them the truth so they don't know what's going on. And then mm-hmm. related to that is the, we call it the absence of inconvenience, that the classic thing that when you're in a position of power, very often, well, you don't have to wait in line. You get, you get the special car, you get the chopper. We were doing some research, the General Motors, right before they went bankrupt, and we would fly to Michigan. This was right before the meltdown. We'd fly to Michigan, and they would just always have, like, in those days, a new Hummer or, or the latest Cadillac right. or, or SUV, whatever. And they'd get it gas, they'd get it serviced. And, and they also had this thing that the more senior the executive you were, the fancier car that you got. And I actually got in trouble for complaining. I said, this is um, protecting you from the experience. From the friction yes. that your customers are facing and trying to buy your car. So that that's a way to generate oblivion, you know, this centrality and what is the absence of absence a, of inconvenience. Absence of inconvenience. Every airline executive should have to be in boarding group 6. Yeah. At least once. To combat friction, leaders have to recognize a core but often unspoken responsibility to their staff. One of the things that I you said that there are three convictions required of fiction fixers. <laughs> And I think the one that I thought might actually make a cool core value is we are trustees of other people's time. Yes, yes. That's the main idea of the book, I think. Right. Say a bit more about. Well, to us, the trustees of other people's time, it doesn't just mean that you make things easy, but it's always being aware of how you're imposing on other people's time and doing it more mindfully. Because almost everything starts with that. And that includes when to go slow, when to go fast is really a, a big part of that. So to us, that's being a trustees. And the example that we start out with is Winston Churchill, a month before the Blitzkrieg started in 1940, writing a note to bureaucrats saying, please make things shorter. And at one point he said something like, the length and complexity of a memo is not an indicator of a diplomat's excellence. Um, it was the first Paperwork Reduction Act. The fair, <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in like the other ones, it didn't work either, yeah, by the way. Is that right? Uh, when he became prime minister again in the 50s, he complained that things were even worse despite his efforts. So what are, I mean, some of the other things you can do to be a respectful trustee of people's time. One is, of course, being aware of how your decisions impact everyone else. I will make it safe for myself and others to be absent, focused, and in the flow. That one really touched me because, you know, I've got Slack, I've got text messages, I've got my email. Like, I'm just being bombarded, right? And so is everyone else. And organizations have done some things like that. One one of the things that I like 
the famous Adam Grant has written about this, is to try to create organizational norms where when somebody doesn't answer your email within an hour and a half, that you're not allowed to write them four more emails. Because, you know, the more you send, the more you receive, and the faster you respond, and you end up with a whole system that ends up being clogged up. I think that that's part of it. Friction can arise from something as simple as the language we use. Another one of your friction problems is jargon monoxide. Oh, jargon monoxide. Right? Well, that's, you know, and, we're having and, fun and, with and that. My, and there's, you have convoluted crap, meaningless bullshit, in-group lingo, and jargon mishmash syndrome. Yes. <laughs> so my favorite is meaningless bullshit because the way you describe it is empty and misleading communication that is meaningless both to the bullshitter and the bullshitter, yes. which is so true, right? To us, the trustee's mindset is really important. And in some of those things, as I say, are uh, are not just saving people's time, but being aware when you're imposing on people or not. I don't know if this is uh, urban legend, but I remember hearing about some college student getting a paperback and the grade was an F, and the professor wrote, you've written 10 pages of bullshit. If you'd given me only three, I would have given you a C. <laughs> I hope it's true. Because it's I hope it's true, too. You also talk about much abused and overused words that no longer mean anything. Yes. What's your favorite? It's agile. And I, I could, by the way, to pick my own world um, design thinking, but let's go after agile. And the example we use is there was an Australian consultant who— gives this talk, and apparently he's still giving this talk, that he talks about, defines 40 different kinds of agile in 40 minutes, which sounds really pretty fun, and I've got like this and great- was, was he thought he was doing something informative and interesting? Well, well it, it is an amazing talk. He wasn't I, making fun of himself. No, 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 no. It was meant, seriously, it's, it's kind of a beautiful talk, but to us, that's what happens when an idea gets overly adopted in too many different ways, and then, you know, bless her heart, one of my friends has written a book about emotional agility, and it's really a cool book, but it's like another use of the oh, word, word agile. agile. Yeah. So, so that's another kind of uh, the jargon mishmash syndrome is when something devolves that it means so many things to different people, it means no one. And the Agile Software Manifesto, which was the starter, that that actually meant something. It just got diluted and uh, yeah, distorted over the years. People take artistic license with the term. So why should we care about jargon monoxide? Well, just imagine you're in a meeting and you think you have a common understanding of the task at hand. But in fact, each of you is operating under a different definition of the problem. Friction also happens when coworkers or teams rub each other the wrong way. And that's where things can get nasty. What is cookie licking? Talk I think about. my older brother was a cookie licker, but I just want to double check. <laughs> well, the cookie, it comes from the notion that, you know, what little kids will do is they'll lick all the cookies so they're all theirs. And <laughs> no it, one will t- wants to touch them. No, no one wants to touch them. You know, calling dibs so other people can't get it. But where this happens in organization is that people, especially in power, will become bottlenecks and not even realize that they will insist on reviewing things. Yeah. They will insist on interviewing people. Or they will insist, and this is where it comes from Microsoft in particular, they'll call dibs on a, on a product feature. And even though they're the not the right group to do it and they keep putting it off, it never gets done. They want to make sure no one else gets credit. No, right. So they grab it and then it dies. And one thing that we haven't talked about is a coordination, which problems which are a huge cause of friction and sort of the star of the book um, in terms of coordination problems would probably be Satya Nadella at Microsoft. In that case, a lot of the dysfunctional friction was caused by just a refusal to cooperate in the organization. 
Was that what you called broken connections? Yes. So there's two levels of broken connections. There's ones where I don't give you the information just because I'm too busy or I'm too focused. And then there's the one where I don't give you the information or I even lie to you because I hate you. <laughs> and and the second one was sort of the Microsoft culture. Um, and this for, is where people were, were doing the cookie licking. They would bid on a project or grab ownership of a project that they may not ever touch. Yes, yes, and... So in 2014, to tell you a brief story, I, I gave a talk there right after it was on scaling, right after Satya took over, and they were really talking openly about their dysfunctional internal competition. It was to the operating systems group, and I got this little tour, and they showed me this Microsoft phone, and I said, oh, what happened to that? And they said it was a complete flop. And I said, so what happened? And I said, you work with Apple and stuff. And he said, well, we don't hate Apple but we hate the people in the phone group. So we'll cooperate with Apple grudgingly, but we'll <laughs> actively undermine um, the phone group. And he said, that's the culture that Satya is trying to fix. And, and Satya has made huge progress. You have to repair these broken connections because fighting friction is a team effort. And sometimes the people you assume are your blockers may actually turn out to be your biggest allies. It is easy to blame people, but from our perspective, it's trying to help one another fix things rather than blame things is, is when things end up being useful. Now, that doesn't mean that there, there are some people who are not so useful that you might not want to waste your time with. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean you have to be cruel right, to them right, and, right. and blame them. For us, one of the root causes, and Huggy's really obsessed with this, my co-author, is, is the notion that friction is often an orphan problem, that we point at other people and we tell them it's their job to fix it. And that's why sometimes having specialists in the Apple culture, they, they have the DRI, directly responsible individual. And when you, when you have a system and where— that's you, not about where they sit in the org chart. It's about a task that they own. Yes, yes. There's a whole section in your book about who are your allies. Like, what's the pyramid of people that can support you in fighting friction as a leader? The most impressive case to me in the book is an effort led by Michael Brennan to fix a— it's a benefits form that was filled out by 2.5 million Michiganders a year and 1,000 questions. 42 pages long. For some social welfare benefit? Well, it was for almost anyone, whether whether it be for food, uh, financial assistance, medical care. You had to complete this form. And my favorite question in it was, uh, when was your child conceived? <laughs> so, okay. Think about how hard it is. But, but, and, that is so funny. And to the credit of the, the group that um, oversaw it in Michigan, they got the head of it into a room. And he couldn't even get to page eight. So he realized it was a problem, and they all worked together. But the part about high friction was, so the new form was 80% shorter, which is a huge cut, right. and had all these positive effects. But there were 1,700 pages of rules that they had to satisfy before the form could be legal and could actually be used. So they had to pull over for six months and work to deal with, with this other friction process. Yes, yeah, yeah, to work with the lawyers, work with the people who understood all the forms, in both federal and state rules. But without those six months, they would not have gotten rid of friction for 2.5 million Michiganders a year Incredible. who complete the form. So Friction so, to fight friction. Free, yeah, it's, yeah, That's it's, interesting. it's not yeah. easy business always. Presumably, most of the people who were working in that agency knew that form sucked. And in fact- like, that, No one was running around defending page 47. No, no, no. Nobody was, and they would say it was because of the rules, which were true and how difficult it was to change and everything. But the interesting thing about that was Adam Selzer, who's one of the co-founders with Michael Brennan of Sevilla. It's the nonprofit in Michigan that, that led this effort. He said when he first started working with the civil servants and the, in the government leaders, he just viewed them as these sort of hapless bureaucrats. But once he started working with them, he said- 
They knew it sucked too. They wanted to help. They were absolutely wonderful. So to me, that's a message that it's easy to blame bureaucracy and civil servants, but those people, um, they want to make things better for citizens too. Perhaps the most pervasive friction is caused by our tendency to add more, more product features, more detailed processes, more guidelines. The one that really captured my mind was what you call addition sickness. Yes. Hit me. What is addition well, so sickness? There's a whole bunch of forces in our brains and in our social systems that make our default problem-solving style addition, not subtraction. There's a bunch of experiments done by a group at University of Virginia. Everything from how to fix a university, how to fix a Lego model, a soup recipe, they had all these different things, that the default problem-solving style is addition. So that's the first problem that our, our brains go there. And is that part inertia, part, I don't want to rock the boat, somebody put a lot of time into this previous process, so it's easier to add than the challenge? Well, that might be some of it. There's also the argument that many organizations, including our employer, reward people based on addition, not subtraction. My favorite example is that the more people who work for you in most organizations, whether the organization needs them or not, the more you will get paid. And the more power you will have, it's a sign of power. God help the individual contributor. Right? God help the individual contributor. Yeah. And I would also say snidely, that's why Stanford now uh, seems to have about as many administrators as students, that faculty do not get rewarded for the number of people who work for them, but uh, staff members do. I think one of the reasons we are much more likely to add new products, new features, new processes, always in the name of improvement, is because it's easier to do that than to challenge the status quo. I'd like to think of it as subtraction aversion. If you're going to stop doing something, that means you have to take on whoever the person was on your team or in your organization that created that thing in the first place. So it's always going to be easier to come up with a great idea that's new and additive rather than challenge the ideas that were already there. The antidote to addition sickness is what Bob calls a subtraction mindset. So those forces are there. That's the bad news. But I think we should talk about the good news because there's lots of organizations that do overcome this and do subtraction. And we have lots of examples of how it actually works. Yeah, so I, I'm, I want to dig right in there. You have some subtraction tools, and I want to go through some of them. You mentioned subtraction rituals. Yes. And a colleague of mine she described in a previous employer, they have something called Halloween end of life party where they celebrate things they're not going to do anymore. Oh, that's fabulous. And they even, they'll even read a eulogy to the dead project or whatever the initiative is that is now being stopped. And I thought, well, that's a great example of a subtraction ritual. We've done this with 120, 125 groups by now. Wow. We call it the subtraction game. And what we do is we get them in a room and we have them first make a list of stuff that's getting them in the way and driving them crazy. And then we say, okay, so now what are you going to do to get rid of it? And sometimes they just bullshit and say they're going to get rid of it. But sometimes on the spot, they do make changes. So there was another large software company I was working with. And on the spot, vice president had 800 people reporting to him. He changed his weekly meeting to every two weeks. I thought, and I was like, yeah, that's actually, and you start doing the math with all the, the numbers. Thousands of hours. Th thousands, thousands of hours. hours. So to me, it starts with a mindset that, yes, good leaders, they see themselves as editors-in-chief. That is so smart. We did something not, not as dramatic as that, but so Seed has a board. And, you know, of course we want to measure our impact. Right, right. But what I always try to remind people is surveys cost money. Measuring things costs money. So don't ask a question you already know the answer to. Don't ask a question if you're not willing to act on what you learn. 
That's just wasted effort, right? So one of the things I was thinking about is how do we force people to make hard choices? How do we introduce the right, right friction? So what we did with our board is we said, look, each of you get four dots. Uh-huh. Here's the 25 things we could measure in terms of impact. Pick four. Constraints are a beautiful thing. Constraints are a beautiful thing. Just as an oblivious leader can often cause friction, they also hold the power to fix some bad friction with just a simple decision. We saw with founders when we wrote our book on scaling, we'd see um, executives who, well, it made sense for them to interview everybody when there's 20, 30, 40 people in the firm. But when there's a thousand, that was Google, right? Well, yeah, Google had some of those problems too. And so I forget, some executive came in and said, if you want more than four interviews, you have to write a letter to me and explain why. Yeah, yes. And they all went away. So the the story there actually, Google's a good example of that because 2002, and I actually still have this transcript and tape, Jeff Pfeffer and I interviewed Larry Page. 2002, Google was maybe 500 people. He said, Sergey and I, we're not very popular in the computer science department because we'll do two, four, six, 10, 15 interviews before we hire someone because we want somebody who's technically excellent and who will grow into a leader. And that made sense for building the company. And then Laszlo Bach wrote a book called Work Rules. He inherits being essentially head of HR, and he sees that people are doing as many as 25 interviews. And this is a case where, you know, people think that power and top-down things are bad sometimes, but sometimes they are good for getting rid of friction if the person has the right intent. So all he did is if you have more than four interviews to do, you have to write me and get permission. And who's going to write a VP, right? You, yeah. It makes you think. It makes you think hard. It makes you think. So a lot of times for— uh, friction fixing, just getting people to pause and think Mm -hmm. about the impact can have an effect. In that case, it's just a little bit of a hassle too. Fixing friction this way is easiest if those decisions are reversible and it's treated more like an experiment. There's also, and we write about this in various ways, there's this notion of being really aware when you're changing stuff about what's reversible and what isn't. Jeff Bezos talks about this as one-way versus two-way doors. And when you make decisions that um, are irreversible, selling your company, buying a big company, maybe you should slow down and be careful. But there's lots of decisions that are reversible and easy. And in that situation, sweating over them and analyzing them and analyzing them maybe isn't a great idea if they're reversible. And the example um, that we use in the book, and I, I was at the meeting, was uh, long ago in the 90s, I spent a year and a half hanging out um, with one of my PhD students, Andy Hargadon, at IDEO, the famous design firm, which at that point was just a little firm, which yeah. mostly did product design. And it grew from 60 to 150 people in Palo Alto, and it was just unwieldy. It was just too much of a mess, you know, to run as one organization. And so they broke it into three studios, and it was this beautiful reorganization. Three people stood up and gave pitches about why you should join my studio, and everybody got their first choice. This was the least oppressive reorganization I've ever seen. People still freaked out because it was the first reorganization. And the famous David Kelly, who, well, he still has a Groucho Marx-type mustache. He shaved it off. And we were freaked out. We could hardly recognize him because we'd never seen him. And he said, uh, this change is like my mustache. I can always grow it back. And, and he did grow back his mustache, and they did change the structure over really the years. Interesting. That's not to say that fixing friction is always easy or always in the hands of just one person. And I worry a little bit about simple rules because I can tell the story or the story about Lazo Black, and it sounds so simple. But uh, a lot of times, you know, speaking of friction, it's really a lot of work to fix friction in a system. It's a high friction experience in many cases. But you had another principle here, which is that 
and I think this comes to your idea story, idea story, organizations are malleable prototypes. Malleable prototypes, yes. And this is the notion that this is the best we can do right now. And instead of making it more and more frictionful in terms of bad friction, there are things we can do to make them better. So don't just get discouraged and think there's nothing we can do. And, and, and I do think that that philosophy does run through the book. And then the other part about uh, friction fixing and being a trustee, which I think is really important, especially in this world of impatience and lack of discipline, which we many of us have, is to treat it as, it's like mowing the lawn. If you do this stuff, you've got to do it regularly. It's it's like- It's going to grow back. Yeah, like I only wash my car about once a year. I don't think it's enough, actually. But. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I'm a third owner of my car. I don't really care what it looks like. I just care that it keeps driving. But if you can remove unwanted friction, there may be surprising things waiting for you, as I learned myself. So as I said, I had far-flung operation at Oxfam. I get hundreds of emails, and I just couldn't keep up. And I, just, I had something like 3,000 emails oh. in my inbox. So I came up with this thing where once a quarter, I would just delete them all. And wow. I would send a note to my whole team and say, I'm deleting every email I haven't read from the past three months. If there's something I was supposed to do for you that I have not done, call me. <laughs> Don't send me an email. Call me. Or if you're in the U.S. Uh-huh. office, drop by my desk. Never got a single call. <laughs> So I was like, it was so liberating. I was like, this, none of this is really, I mean, there's, if something's important, somebody would have already called right, me right, anyway, right? right, right? right, right. And the, the crazy part about the story is, so I was doing one of these annual cleanings or quarterly where it's just deleting thousands of emails without looking at them. And there was one that caught my eye and the subject line was, this is a, the last time I'm going to reach out to you about this opportunity. And I looked at the email and it didn't say what opportunity it was and there was no thread. So I just wrote back and said, what opportunity? Uh-huh. And it turned out to be working at Stanford Seat. <laughs> So the one email out of 3,000, which had the least amount of information, which I answered, turned out to actually be me here. Isn't that weird? Is there a question you wish I'd asked you? Yeah. So the one thing that is my favorite point in the book, which I almost think... Oh, shit. I missed your favorite point in the book. No, no, it's late in the book, is uh, the power of love and caring. And we really, I really got this. This guy named Todd Park. Todd Park's most famous for leading the effort to fix the Obamacare site, which would take eight seconds when you clicked on it when it first, and he led this movement internally. He also did things like he, he and his brother started something called um, Athena Health and sold it. And now he's got a new company called Devoted Health to provide healthcare to people 65 and older like me. It's in 17 states. And his perspective is where we start with is when each one of our agents or representatives talks to a client, we treat them just like they're your mother or your father, somebody you love. And his argument is that if you just started with love and work backwards, the logistics get easier to fix. That's actually probably the best closing quote we could ever have for this (laughs) podcast. Friction can be a helpful handbrake or it can stop you dead in your tracks. The key is to use it intentionally and eliminate it when it's not needed. If you're a leader, be aware of your own influence. Remember, you are the trustee of everyone else's time. Beware of addition sickness. Approach problems with a subtraction mindset. There's a wealth of subtraction games and rituals that you can use to underscore that sometimes the solution is less, not more. As an executive, you have a responsibility to reduce friction between teams. So ask yourself, Does your workplace have an explicit or implicit incentive structure that encourages unproductive competition between your staff? Fixing friction isn't easy. 
you'll have more success if you approach it together as a team. Because not everyone in the so-called friction supply chain is actually part of the problem. They might desperately want to be part of the solution. They might even be champions for change. If you want to learn more about friction, we'll have a video of my full interview with Bob Sutton available soon on the Stanford Graduate School of Business YouTube page. And you can pre-order his book. It's the ultimate guide to fixing friction in your organization. And we'll have a link to it in our show notes. So, Bob, thank you so much for sharing all of your incredible insights. The book is The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. I've already read it. It's a fabulous book, and I'm really excited for it. And you said you can order it now. Sure. Go for it. <laughs> thank you. It's lo lovely I to I can't talk. recommend it enough. This was one of my favorites. Thank, thank you. That concludes Season 3 of our podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Next year, starting in January, we'll be introducing Season 4, and we look forward to seeing you there. From all of us here at the podcast, have a happy and safe new year and may your business thrive. This has been Grit and Growth from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Erica Amawake Ajay and VN Virgin researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another episode. Yeah.